This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm glad to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. We'll start reading this week from JTA. The first article, in Highland Park's Jewish community, few are untouched by deadly mass shooting, by Leslie Hirschfeld and Andrew Lappin. Highland Park, Illinois. Bright Bowls was open for July 4th in Highland Park's main commercial district, and its owners, Lindsay and Matt Meltzer, were prepared for a busy day. Lindsay had left her job at the Jewish United Fund of Chicago to open her dream business, a vegetarian smoothie shop and wellness studio, in June 2020. This would be the first year since the pandemic began that her suburb would hold its annual Independence Day festivities, including a parade, and the Meltzers were eagerly anticipating lots of foot traffic. The Maxwell Street Klezmer Band began playing in the parade lineup, performing the joyful Jewish standard Freilachs von der Huppe, Happiness Under the Huppe. A parade observer, the local Jewish entrepreneur Candace Crane, laughed and took pictures with her husband and two of her young children. We were joking. Only in Highland Park does the Klezmer Band come, Crane said. Then everything changed. I was standing at the register, and all of a sudden I see the Highland Park High School Band running up the street, Lindsay Meltzer said. The first thought I had was that there was an active shooter. Moments later, a police officer rode up on his bicycle and told everyone to get off the street. We just opened our door, Lindsay said. We have a basement that's about the size of our entire store, and we were able to house over a hundred people safely away from windows. Her husband stood at the front door, keeping watch while Lindsay guided everyone else mostly families with young children to hide downstairs. A teacher with some active shooter training, herself Jewish, played games with the children and helped keep everyone calm. Meanwhile, Howard Prager, a tuba player in the band, said he thought he saw the shooter flee the scene. We saw a lot of people running, he said. We saw the panic and terror in their eyes. Crane hid with her six-year-old daughter in an abandoned storefront separated from her husband and one-year-old who were taken inside an apartment building by a good Samaritan. We live literally five minutes from that intersection where the shooting took place, Crane said. That's our neighborhood. That's basically our backyard. The shooting at the Highland Park's July 4th parade killed seven people, six of whom were officially identified Tuesday. Catherine Goldstein, 64, Arena McCarthy, 35, Kevin McCarthy, 37, Stephen Strauss, 88, Jackie Sundheim, 63, and Nicholas Toledo Zaragoza, 78. Dozens of people were injured in the downtown, left strewn with abandoned strollers and chairs, as the shooting left a trail of devastation in the heart of Highland Park. A city of about 30,000 where about half of the residents are Jewish. The victims included both Jews and non-Jews in a reflection of the suburb's diversity and the draw of its 4th of July festivities. Multiple GoFundMe pages began circulating online immediately for families of victims and survivors, including one for the two-year-old son of the McCarthys, who will now be raised by his grandparents, Nina and Misha Levberg. That fundraiser drew nearly $2 million in its first 12 hours. 
Meanwhile, a local rabbi who put out a call for pediatric spine surgeon referrals for an 8-year-old child from her congregation who was critically injured said she was overwhelmed by responses. The Chicago suburb is home to a large Jewish community, including a substantial number of Israelis and the national headquarters of a liberal political action committee, Jewish political action committee. It was left in a state of shock and trauma following the event. Jewish camps and other activities were canceled around the area the following day, and some of the many synagogues in the area announced special services responding to the shooting. North Shore Congregation Israel, located in nearby Glencoe, announced that one of the victims was Sundheim, a congregant, preschool educator, and B'nai Mitzvah coordinator at the synagogue. There are no words sufficient to express the depth of our grief, the synagogue said in a statement. The congregation declined an interview with JTA, saying it was fully focused on supporting our community right now, but held a, surface of com a service of comfort and consolation in response to the mass shooting Tuesday evening. A separate memorial service for Sundheim will take place Friday. Three members of Am Shalom, a reformed congregation in nearby Glencoe, were injured by the gunman, and two went to the hospital with their injuries, according to Rabbi Stephen Lowenstein, who said the injured did not want to release their names. Also planning to hold special services were North Suburban Synagogue Bethel, a large conservative congregation, and Reform Congregation Makom Solel Lakeside, both in Highland Park. Bethel declined to comment to JTA. Rabbi Evan Moffick of Makom Solel told JTA that racial justice activist Reverend Jesse Jackson would likely attend the prayer vigil service there. Multiple area Jewish spiritual leaders told JTA that while they did not want to speculate as to the motives of the shooter, their communities were wrestling with their feelings of security being upended. I think our Jewish antenna go up a little bit on these things, said Rabbi Jody Kornfeld of Beth Chavarim, humanistic Jewish community in nearby Deerfield. Mafik, a longtime contributor to JTA's sister site, My Jewish Learning, told Chicago Public Radio Station WBEZ the day after the shooting that I do feel safe in this community as a Jew, but added, of course this affects our psyche. It's why we have many security measures at our synagogue. Other rabbis noted that while their own congregants may have been safe physically from the attack, they are feeling the damage psychologically. Although local authorities have not yet said whether they believe the shooter's motivation was anti-Semitic, at least one Highland Park rabbi reported that the suspect, whom authorities said had pre-planned his attack for weeks, had previously visited a synagogue, his own. Yosef Shanovitz, the rabbi of the Highland Park Chabad, told the Orthodox news site Anash that he recognized the alleged shooter who said he had been turned away uh, who he said had been turned away from Chabad by its armed security guard during a Passover Seder this year. A spokesperson for Chabad told JTA the congregation has a security camera, but didn't say whether footage of the incident was captured. The building security guard also confirmed to the forward that the suspect had, had visited the congregation during Passover, saying he gave his name and sat in the sanctuary for 45 minutes before leaving. 
No other North Shore area synagogues reached by JTA reported having seen the shooting suspect at their houses of worship. Authorities said the alleged killer, who was charged late Tuesday with seven counts of murder, had obtained the high-powered rifle used in the massacre legally. The shooting has once again reignited debates around gun control measures in the United States, a subject even Highland Park's own Jewish community has been divided over in the past. In 2013, a local Jewish pediatrician named Ari Friedman, then a member of Bethel, sued the city over its new assault weapons ban, claiming that the ban was infringing on his Second Amendment's rights. A 2010 candidate for the U.S. House and 2012 candidate for the Illinois State Senate, and at the time active in the Republican Jewish Coalition's Chicago chapter, Friedman brought his petition to the U.S. Supreme Court, which denied it in 2015. Friedman did not respond to several JTA requests for comment, and his pediatric office said he was on vacation. A spokesperson for RJC told JTA that Friedman is no longer active with the group. He is also no longer a Bethel congregant, according to a local source. Meanwhile, among the many local Jews who advocated for the ban was Marsha Balanik, executive director of the Joint Action Committee for Public, uh, Political Affairs, known as JACPAC, a liberal pro-Israel lobby headquartered in Highland Park. She was riding afloat at the parade with her son, grandson, and grandson's baseball team and witnessed the shooting. I never imagined I'd face this in my own community. Nothing prepares you for bloodshed on the streets I walk on, Balanik said, adding that the incident would make Jack Pack more determined than ever to ensure that we elect members of Congress who will once and for all put an end to gun violence with an assault weapons ban. Several Jewish groups, such as the conservative movement's rabbinical assembly, said the violent rampage was the latest instance of America's failure to legislate firearms. Our hearts ache for the lives cut short by gun violence, and we despair that U.S. government leaders have not reacted decisively enough to prevent these tragedies from becoming commonplace, the rabbinical assembly said in a statement urging reforms. The local Jews who scrambled to flee for safety and help people during the carnage said they were devastated that their once tranquil haven had become a horrifying scene. Matt and I have lived in so many different places in the world. We grew up here. We fell in love here, Lindsay Meltzer said. We knew this was the place we wanted to raise our kids. I can't believe it. It's just upsetting that this has now hit our own town. Prager, who said his band's clarinet player, has decided he will no longer play at parades, is a regular attendee at virtual Kiddush Minion services hosted by My Jewish Learning. He says he takes comfort in Jewish rituals in times of crisis and also tries to promote positive interactions with fellow humans via his book, Make Someone's Day. We need to find more ways to lift one another up, he said, especially during these times by looking for ways to make people feel better, by caring about one another. And next, what you need to know about Highland Park, the very Jewish Chicago suburb rattled by July 4th shooting by Gabe Friedman. In 2014, JTA included Highland Park in an article on communities across the country that were melding Jewish pride into their ceremonies for July 4th, which that year fell on Friday just before Shabbat. 
Locals were used to seeing a 1953 pickup truck drive through their suburb and others along Chicago's North Shore blaring a mashup of the song Yankee Doodle Boy with a nigun or wordless melody written by the noted Orthodox singer and songwriter Shlomo Karlbach. The director of a local synagogue said he passed out both American and Israeli flags along the North Shore parade route. In Highland Park, he told JTA, they preferred the Israeli flag. The report captures Highland Park's sky-high levels of Jewish pride and provides yet another example of how Monday shooting that killed at least seven people at a July 4th parade there struck the heart of one of the country's idyllic suburban Jewish capitals. One of the two victims identified, Jackie Sondheim, was the B'nai Mitzvah and event coordinator for the North Shore Congregation in Israel in the neighboring suburb of Glencoe. The entire North Shore region, which stretches over 20 miles along Lake Michigan, approximately from Evanston up to Lake Bluff, is heavily Jewish, and other adjacent suburbs northwest of Chicago, such as Buffalo, Grove, and Skokie, are also known for their large Jewish populations. But Highland Park has the highest Jewish ratio of them all, and it was the original Chicago suburb that grew a substantial Jewish population in the early 20th century. According to a 2020 study of the metropolitan Chicago area by researchers at Brandeis University and the University of Chicago, Highland Park is 50% Jewish, about 15,000 of the suburb's 30,000 residents. About 3% of the Jews in Highland Park and its surrounding towns are Israeli, the study also found. Thanks to its leading number of Jewish institutions, from camps to synagogues to a kosher butcher and other kosher restaurants, Highland Park is also still a destination for Jews throughout the North Shore, said Jay Takath, Executive Vice President of Chicago's Jewish United Fund. While there are other Jewish concentrations elsewhere in the North Shore, Highland Park is still the original. Highland Park is kind of still the Mecca, or Jerusalem, if you will, Takath said. Highland Park's Jewish history dates back to the turn of the 20th century, when Takath said Jewish families began spending parts of their summer in the area. The Lakeshore Country Club opened in 1908 as likely the only of its kind in the area to admit Jews in neighboring Glencoe, but Takath said it was primarily populated by people from Highland Park. In 1918, the similar Northmore Country Club opened in Highland Park proper. Some lamenting the tragedy on social media noted how the shooting punctuated a punctured a very affluent, normally peaceful town, where several iconic movies ostensibly about American suburbia, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off to Sixteen Candles, were filmed. Highland Park's median household income was $147,000 in 2020, according to the Census Bureau, more than twice the national median. It's a place of movie magic and one of the 100 wealthiest cities in America, tweeted the noted film critic Richard Roper. No place is safe. The town has avoided large-scale anti-Semitic incidents throughout the 20th century, even as nearby Skokie became the site of a nationwide neo-Nazi march and the center of a landmark Supreme Court case in the 1970s, and as West Rogers Park on Chicago's far northwest side saw a white supremacist shoot to kill multiple Orthodox Jews leaving services in 1999. Takat said that the worst for Highland Park involved anti-Semitic hockey fans 
from neighboring towns who in the 1980s and 90s would throw bagels onto the ice when their children played against Highland Park to try to intimidate and embarrass them. In 2019, Highland Park High School yearbooks had to be edited to remove Nazi and white supremacist elements from multiple students' comments. This past April, around the Yom HaShoah Holocaust Remembrance Day, anti-Semitic flyers were found scattered throughout Highland Park and other North Shore communities. They shared qualities with others distributed in several other cities over the past year by the anti-Semitic Goyim Defense League group. Highland Park's Jewish population is comparable to Squirrel Hill, the Pittsburgh neighborhood where a white supremacist opened fire on the Tree of Life synagogue in 2018, killing 11 Jewish worshipers. Like Squirrel Hill, which is also home to almost exactly 15,000 Jews, Highland Park boasts an array of synagogues spanning denominations, including multiple Reform congregations and the largest Chabad-Lubavitch Center in the area, called the Central, area, uh, Central Avenue Synagogue. It has also been the hometown for several famous Jews, from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids screenwriter William Goldman to Olympic figure skater Jason Brown. Rachel Brosnahan, who is not Jewish, but has said her upbringing around Jewish friends helped inform her performance as the very Jewish comedian Midge Maisel in the Emmy-winning uh, Amazon TV series The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, also hails from Highland Park. Several Highland Park mayors, including the incumbent, Nancy Rotering, have been Jewish. The town is rich in other 20th century Jewish history. In 1967, Highland Park's congregation Solel flew a delegation into Washington, D.C. to protest the Vietnam War in what a JTA dispatch from the time called a historic move for an American congregation of any faith. Highland Park synagogue goers were also active in the movement to free Soviet Jewry in the 1970s and 80s. Congregation Solel was led for a decade by Rabbi Robert Marks, a pioneering social justice activist who marched with Martin Luther King Jr. and died last year at 93. While the Squirrel Hill shooter's motive was clear, local police are still investigating the alleged Highland Park attacker, Robert Bobby Cremo III. Cremo's father, Bob Cremo II, is a well-known local figure who owns multiple businesses, including a deli, and once unsuccessfully ran for mayor. Takath said that while his organization and so many others are still looking into the younger Cremo's background, Highland Park's Jews are not reacting first with fears about a looming wave of specifically anti-Semitic violence. The town is heavily democratic, and the fact that the incident was another of the 300-plus mass shootings in the United States so far in 2022 has many talking about gun reform. People are shaken, but they're not processing it as I was or I am at more risk because I live in Highland Park in particular, Takath said. It's being processed as this is yet another example of what America is today. Next from JTA, Tennessee court dismisses Jewish couples' lawsuit alleging religious bias in adoption law by Jackie Hajdenberg. Tennessee judges have dismissed a lawsuit by a Jewish couple who said a state-supported Christian adoption agency discriminated against them as they sought to adopt a child. Elizabeth and Gabriel Rutan Ram's lawsuit filed in January, challenged a 2020 Tennessee law 
that allows religious adoption agencies to deny service to people seeking to adopt based on their religious beliefs. The law was designed to allow agencies not to place children with same-sex couples. The Rutan Rams charged that an adoption agency had told them it went against the agency's values to place the child in a non-Christian home. In dismissing the lawsuit, which the Rutan Rams filed with the support of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, the judges did not rule on the Tennessee law itself, though they wrote that it does not single out people of the Jewish faith as a disfavored, innately inferior group, according to an Associated Press report. Instead, the panel voted two to one that the lawsuit should not proceed for technical reasons, including that the Rutan Rams have successfully been able to be trained as and become foster parents with the state's support. The couple told JTA in January that they have enjoyed introducing their foster daughter to Judaism. It went all gung-ho on Hanukkah, which you know, when you're comparing it to Christmas, it's hard, Elizabeth Rutan Rams said at the time. And she also got Christmas presents. She said she wants an Easter basket. We're still going to include her in those things. We are all including each other. She and her husband described the process that led them to believe they had been discriminated against because of their religion. They said they had openly disclosed that they are Jewish, but believed that the Holston United Methodist Home for Children in Greenfield, which denied them training, would have found out anyway. One of the things that you have to do is a home study, Gabriel Rutan Ram told JTA. They would have seen the mezuzah on the door. They would have seen the Kotel painting up on our wall. There's Jewish iconography, iconography throughout the house and not a single cross or a Jesus picture up anywhere. Elizabeth added, they would have probably asked something like, where do we go to church? And we were not going to lie about any of it. The couple will be allowed to adopt the girl within the next year if she is not reunified with her parents, according to the judge's ruling. The couple plans to foster and potentially adopt another child. Americans United for Separation of Church and State said it plans to appeal the decision and further contest Tennessee's law, which the group's president and CEO, Rachel Lasser, called unconscionable and unconstitutional in a statement. The courthouse door should not be slammed shut on foster parents and taxpayers like Gabe and Liz Rutan Ram, who bravely came forward to fight religious discrimination in state-funded foster care services, Blazer said. Ben & Jerry's sues parent company of Unilever over sale of Israeli business by Caleb Guedes Reed. Ben & Jerry's is not letting go of its West Bank pull-out gold without a fight with its parent company. The iconic ice cream brand has filed a lawsuit against Unilever over its decision last week to sell the Israeli arm of the business to Israeli-based franchise American Quality Products Limited and its owner Avi Zinger, which will continue to sell Ben & Jerry's in the West Bank. Ben & Jerry's says that Unilever's decision was made without the brand's, uh, the brand's board's consent and wrote in a statement Tuesday that stopping the sale is necessary to protect the social integrity that the ice cream brand has spent decades building. The lawsuit will aim to block the sale. After publicly critiquing the Unilever move last week, the Ben & Jerry's board voted on Friday to file suit, the New York Post reported. It's a done deal, 
Zinger's attorney, Aliza Lewin, president of the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law, wrote in response, Unilever chose the morally correct, socially just, and principled path when it ensured that Ben & Jerry's ice cream would always continue to be produced and sold in Israel and the West Bank. Other pro-Israel groups that had pressured Unilever to take action to maintain the brand's Israel, uh, Israel presence dismissed the lawsuit, with the, uh, the Israeli-American Coalition for Action calling it a tantrum by BDS activists at Ben & Jerry's referring to the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement targeting Israel. IAC for Action Executive Director Joseph Sabag told JTA that his group and others, including Stand With Us, turned Ben & Jerry's into a rallying cause because of Unilever's size and influence within the business world. They hope to make the case a deterrent to other companies considering their own Israel restrictions or considering a similar acquisition agreement that would give a brand the same kind of control over its social advocacy. I can hardly think of a company out there that would want to follow in Unilever's footsteps now, Sabag said. He referred to the pro-Israel advocacy campaign around Ben & Jerry's as proof of concept for an economic iron dome protecting Israel from financial pressures, a reference to the country's venerated missile defense system. The Ben & Jerry's board, which has a history of social justice advocacy, made the decision to stop selling its product in what they call occupied Palestinian territory following Israel's deadly conflict with Hamas in May 2021. Unilever originally stated that it had little power over decisions made by Ben & Jerry's board, which makes its recent decision to sell a surprise. Next from JTA, NFL team owner Dan Snyder missed July dates to testify before Congress to attend his mother's yard site by Jacob Henry. Washington Commander's owner Dan Snyder was unable to appear for a deposition on the sexual harassment scandal surrounding his team on July 6th or 8th because of a trip to Israel to observe his mother's yard site or ceremony marking the anniversary of her death, his rabbi claims. The House Committee on Oversight and Reform has summoned Snyder and NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell to appear as part of an investigation into the commander's work culture and Snyder's response to several complaints. In a letter obtained by JTA, Snyder's attorney Karen Patton Seymour said that the owner is traveling to Israel but would be available for video testimony July 28th or 29th. After Snyder missed the first hearing, June 22nd, claiming he had asked for a delay, the committee had offered the dates of July 6th and 8th. Given that these plans are part of religious observances honoring his mother's memory on the one-year anniversary of her passing, Mr. Snyder's trip to Israel cannot be rescheduled, Seymour said in the letter. Multiple women employees in executive positions with the team have accused their co-workers of sexual harassment. According to a document released in June by New York Democrat Carolyn Maloney, the House Committee's chair, Snyder conducted a shadow investigation to discredit their allegations, which involved hiring private investigators to intimidate witnesses and filing an overseas lawsuit to obtain phone records and emails. The NFL fined the team $10 million, and Snyder stepped down from day-to-day -day operations after the investigation was announced last July. In another letter to Maloney obtained by this reporter, Snyder's rabbi, Shalom Brachek, wrote that the Snyder family has been planning a trip to Israel over the course of the past year. The 
Yoritz site is usually marked with a ceremony at home and occasionally the synagogue, but Rachik said this year's anniversary coincides with the completion of a commissioned Torah scroll by a scribe in Israel to honor Snyder's late mother, Arlene Snyder. Republican Representatives, uh, Representative James Comer of Kentucky, who is a ranking member on the Oversight Committee, was also cc'd on the letter from the rabbi. Rachik wrote that the services he and Dan Snyder planned for the Israel trip will encompass most of July and into August. Mrs. Snyder was a person who held the Torah laws and traditions dear to her heart, Rachik said. The ceremony and completion of the Holy Torah scroll in her merit and memory is a step in the process of the elevation of her soul and being drawn closer to God in heaven. Rachik also said that representatives from the Snyder family informed Maloney on multiple occasions about the Eretzite observance and offered several alternate testimony dates, including appearing remotely from Israel. I understand that many of these Jewish traditions may be unfamiliar to you and your staff, Rachik wrote to Maloney. The staff's insistence that Mr. Snyder disrupt his observances to participate in proceedings before your committee reflects an insensitivity to sacred Jewish traditions. Seymour said that committee staff declined even to acknowledge the proposed date, stating that only that the committee would have to determine how to proceed. I am concerned that the way the committee staff has proceeded, including inaccurate public statements accusing Mr. Snyder of attempting to evade an appearance and seeking special treatment, is not only unfair but will detract from Mr. Snyder and his family's ability to focus on the solemn rituals associated with the observance of his mother's first uricide. A committee spokesman told JTA that Snyder failed to appear voluntarily at the committee's hearing in June and refused to allow his attorney to accept service of subpoena. We remain committed to securing Mr. Snyder's testimony on the toxic work environment at the Washington Commanders following his failure to appear voluntarily at the committee's hearing and his continued refusal to allow his attorney to accept service of a subpoena, the spokesman told JTA. We are continuing to negotiate with his counsel to ensure the committee can obtain the full and complete testimony we need, and we are reviewing her latest correspondence. Maloney, who is running for a congressional seat in New York's newly drawn District 12 against her fellow longtime incumbent, Gerald Nadler, who is highlighting his Jewishness in his campaign, did not respond to a request for comment by publishing time. Next from JTA, Ukraine says it will not allow in Uman pilgrims for Rosh Hashanah by Kanan Lipschitz. More than four months into its devastating war against Russia, Ukraine is sending a new message to the world's Jews. Don't come here for Rosh Hashanah. Tens of thousands of Jews flood into Uman, a central city that is home to the grave of Reb uh, Nachman of Breslov, an 18th century Jewish luminary annually for the Jewish New Year. Even in the first year of the pandemic, when global travel ground to a halt, gathering was officially banned, Jewish pilgrims sought to make their way to Uman. This year, their security cannot be guaranteed, Ukraine's ambassador to Israel, Yevgen Korinichuk, said in a statement posted Thursday on the embassy's Facebook page. Due to concerns for the lives and well-being of the visitors to Ukraine and in light of the blatant Russian war in our country, despite all efforts, we cannot guarantee the security of pilgrims and do not currently allow tourists and visitors to enter Ukraine, Kornichuk wrote. 
statement did not say whether it constitutes an official ban on traffic into Ukraine, which receives thousands of arrivals daily through its land borders with Poland, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, and Moldova. Israelis and Jews from around the world have been among those entering the country to provide aid and respite to war refugees who are now estimated to number more than 6 million just within Ukraine's borders. Korinichuk exhorted would-be pilgrims to pray for the end of the war, which began when Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th. Your prayers are important to us. Please pray that before Rosh Hashanah, the war in Ukraine, which broke out due to blatant and cruel Russian aggression, will come to an end and pray for the victory of Ukraine, he wrote. We hope that the prayers will be fulfilled and that Ukraine will once again be a country that generously receives visitors from Israel and especially Jews who come to Ukraine to visit the graves of the righteous. Great British Bake Off host Matt Lucas discovers his family member lived within Frank's family by Caleb Guedes Reed. The Jewish comic actor and great British Bake Off host Matt Lucas came across a very familiar name while researching his family's history on BBC's Who Do You Think You Are? That of Otto Frank. In an episode of the Celebrity Genealogy Show that aired June 16th, Lucas learned that Werner Goldschmidt, his grandmother's first cousin, had rented a room from the Franks while they were still living in their Amsterdam apartment. Goldschmidt was still living with them when they went into hiding in 1942 and was mentioned in Anne Frank's famous diary. In a clip from the episode on YouTube, Lucas reads a diary entry Frank had written on July 8, 1942, which describes Goldschmidt as a recent divorcee who was hanging around in the house too long that night despite the family's polite hints for him to get on with his evening. I would have read this diary when I was younger and never realized that she was talking about a relative of mine, said Lucas, who was only vaguely aware that some of his family members had died in concentration camps. Lucas, who has also appeared in other shows like Doctor Who and movies like Paddington, was raised in a reform synagogue in London, though his parents came from traditional Orthodox families. He expands on his Jewish identity in his memoir, Little Me, My Life from A to Z, which has a chapter, J, for Jewish. Contestants on the wildly popular cooking show The Great Jewish Bake Off have, uh, The Great British Bake Off have made occasional Jewish-inspired plates on the show, such as haroset and matzah-topped pavlova in 2020. Next from JTA, a Jewish camp is reassuring families amid a social media offensive over its inclusion of trans children by Jackie Hodgdenberg. A Jewish summer camp in Southern California is reassuring families after a prominent anti-LGBT Twitter account, Libs of TikTok, called attention to a year-old diversity and inclusion statement on its website. Camp Ramah, which owns tens of camps across the country, announced they are housing kids according to their gender identity rather than birth sex, the account tweeted Wednesday afternoon. It linked to a document published by Camp Ramah in California explaining how the camp would include staff and campers with different religious backgrounds, family structures, gender identities, and more. The tweet was standard fare for Libs of TikTok, which has amassed 1.3 million followers for its stream of mostly anti-LGBT plus content. 
much of which aims to generate outrage about how public schools and individual educators teach about gender and sexuality. The account's growth has dovetailed with a broad push by conservative lawmakers in many states to restrict medical care for trans children, penalize their parents, or limit their participation in school activities, including sports. The identity of the person behind Libs of TikTok, Chaya Rachik, an Orthodox Jewish woman based in Los Angeles, was discovered by Washington Post reporter Taylor Lorenz in April. In an in-depth report, Lorenz detailed how Rachik's account can set the agenda for conservative personalities, as well as online trolls who have inundated some of the people the account has featured with harassment and even death threats. Exactly what that has looked like for Camp Ramah in California is not clear. Directors Rabbi Joe Benasha and Ariella Moss Petersile told parents by email Thursday that they were aware of a social media offensive against the camp and had taken steps to ensure security. We have no reason to believe there is any specific threat. However, we are responding and communicating with you in line with our commitment to transparency, they wrote to families of the hundreds of campers spending the summer at the camp located in Ojai, California. Please know that the camp continues to run seamlessly for our Hanuchim campers and Sebet staff, and we are in contact with our security partners about an abundance of caution, they added. Reached at camp late Thursday, Menasha told JTA, we are focused on providing camp for our community at this time and have no comment. Ramah is the conservative movement of Judaism's Summer Camp Network and the National Ramah Commission, operates 10 overnight camps and five-day camps in the United States and Canada. Each Ramah camp sets its own approach to gender diversity and inclusion, according to the National Ramah Commission. Ramah New England, for example, noted in a diversity statement published in April that some of its campers might identify with a different gender than they had in the past and might therefore be assigned to a different bunk in the future. The statement Rachik referred to from Ramah in California is not new. It was uploaded to the camp's website in April 2021, and the section about sexual orientation and gender diversity represents just a small portion. It says the camp is committed to creating a safe and welcoming environment for LGBTQ plus identified kids, staff, and parents, and also acknowledges that adjusting to the needs of transgender campers may be challenging for some. We recognize that this may represent a learning zone for some of our families, the statement said. Ramah is far from the only camp to have sought to have also sought to be more inclusive of children who are transgender, non-binary, or otherwise gender non-conforming. Some Jewish camps have offered all gender or transgender friendly housing since at least 2016, and alums of Jewish camps opened a new camp this year serving exclusively transgender children from all religious backgrounds. Libs of TikTok has called out some of the others too. Camp Akita in Ohio, an accredited camp with ACA camps, is housing kids based on their gender identity, the account tweeted on July 4th. Parents won't be notified if their child switches cabins or if their kids' counselors, uh, counselor or bunkmates who sleep in their cabin identify as transgender. 
Uh, many of the responses to the libs of TikTok post about Pamper Mom mocked the camp or slammed it for its approach to gender and sexuality. Others replied with a different take. Hi, parent of three Vermont campers, and I couldn't be prouder of their efforts to support LGBTQ youth, wrote an account operated by a woman in Phoenix. And you know what else? It doesn't bother my kids because camp has fostered their sense of community and inclusion. You should consider it. Next from JTA, top AP brass attend reopening of Gaza Bureau that was in building bombed by Israel by Ron Campeas. Top executives from the Associated Press launched the news agency's new office in the Gaza Strip more than a year after Israel gave AP staff an hour's notice to leave before bombing the building. It said also housed a Hamas intelligence unit. The importance the agency attached to reopening the bureau was signaled by the presence of Daisy Virzingham, the AP president and executive editor Julie Pace, at the dedication of the new office on Tuesday. Israel is already under intense scrutiny of how it handles the international media following the shooting death in May of a popular Palestinian-American journalist. AP's resilient Gaza team has never wavered, even in the moments our bureau collapsed and in the weeks that followed, Virasingham said in a statement. The Associated Press has operated in Gaza for more than half a century and remains committed to telling the story of Gaza and its people. The reopening comes after multiple news outlets, including the Associated Press, published analyses blaming Israeli troops for the death of Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akhla, who was shot while covering an Israeli raid in Jenin. The State Department on Monday said Israeli troops were likely the shooters, but also said the killing was unintentional. Last year, during the Israel-Gaza conflict, Israel bombed a 12-story building in Gaza City known as a center for journalists covering the region, including some working for the AP and Al Jazeera. IDF officials warned journalists to leave the building an hour before the attack. Israeli officials said that Hamas was operating out of the tower. In its latest release, the AP said Israel never provided evidence of Hamas's presence in the building. Next from JTA, leading Orthodox groups cheered the end of Roe v. Wade. Many Orthodox women are panicking. By Ron Campeas, Washington. Pam Scheininger and J. David Bleich have this much in common. They are Orthodox Jews who are preoccupied with Jewish ethics and teach at New York City law schools. But when Scheininger looks at an American map, she sees 16 states where Orthodox Jewish women would not be able to have an abortion, otherwise sanctioned by Jewish law. Bleich sees a different number, zero. Disagreements among Jews over where Jewish and state laws intersect on abortion, once theoretical, have taken on urgency in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 court decision that enshrined a woman's right to an abortion. The differences of opinion are especially acute among the Orthodox, where there is a yawning gap between a faction that says the reversal of Roe v. Wade has triggered a crisis that will put the lives of women at risk, and another that welcomes the decision as life-affirming and aligned with traditional Jewish values. 
latter position comes as Orthodox groups have in recent years drifted politically to the right. Society, through its laws, should promote a social ethic that affirms the supreme value of life, a good of Israel of America, the umbrella body for Haredi, ultra-Orthodox groups, said in a statement welcoming the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Allowing abortion on demand, in contrast, promotes a social ethic that devalues life. The phrase, abortion on demand, irks many, included among the Orthodox, because it is seen as diminishing the thought that goes into the decision, and because even under Roe v. Wade, there were abortion restrictions. Orthodox groups have yet to address how they will reconcile situations in which halakha, the body of Jewish law, mandates an abortion and a state forbids it. There is already chatter in Orthodox online forums and on social media about setting up a network for Orthodox Jewish women in states where abortion is banned to travel to places like New York where it is not. Like advanced the proposal on Torah musings and Orthodox ideas exchange after the court decision was first leaked in May. A number of Orthodox Jewish women already are pushing back, saying such a system would be impractical and would compound the trauma of having an abortion. The Agudath Israel statement said that abortions mandated by Jewish law are extraordinary, rare exceptions to the rule that fetal life is entitled to protection. Bleich, a rabbi and professor of ethics at Yeshiva University and its law school, Cardozo, said those exceptions do not contradict any state laws. As of today, I do not think there is a single state which forbids abortion when the mother's life is at stake, Bleich said, adding, I think district attorneys are smart enough not to bring a course of action when a fetus threatens the life of a mother. Scheinberger, the president of the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance and a court attorney referee who teaches law at the New York College of Technology, said prosecution was inevitable in part because some laws were vague and did not account for health threats, short of imminent death, which would be considered under Jewish law. Halakha includes exceptions for mental health, and some states do not. Georgia explicitly excludes it. Orthodox Jewish women are going to have, uh, are going to have those who assist them in getting an abortion prosecuted for availing themselves or trying to avail themselves of halakhically required abortions, she said. It's that simple, she said. It's going to happen and women will die. The Orthodox Union, the umbrella body for the modern Orthodox, has sought to straddle the divide. We cannot support absolute bans on abortion at any point in a pregnancy that would not allow access to abortion in life-saving situations, it said after the decision came down. Similarly, we cannot support legislation that does not limit abortion to situations in which medical, including mental health professionals, affirm that carrying the pregnancy to term poses real risk to the life of the mother. Nathan Diamant, the Orthodox Union's Washington director, said his group and its state offices were conducting a review of the state laws before considering further action, including lobbying for changes to laws. It's already clear, he said, that the laws will trigger litigation, although he could not say if his organization would join any such lawsuits. Most of the legislation that's out there has some sort of physical health and other health exception, 
but because of how dramatic the changes are because of the Supreme Court, there still needs to be implementation by each of the states, he said. It's going to be a long haul. He predicted that the Supreme Court would soon have to resolve the issue again. Indeed, there have already been reports of confusion and fear among the physicians who provide abortion because so many of the state laws are written vaguely. Rabbi Abba Cohen, Agudath Israel's Washington director, also said it was early days. We are currently having internal discussions about various matters related to the overturning of Roe, he said in an email. We are also planning to consult with our rabbinic leadership. Outside of the, uh, the Orthodox sector, most Jewish organizations which trend politically liberal have said they will act to oppose abortion bans. And within three days of the court's Dobbs versus Jackson decision, Israel loosened its already liberal abortion regulations. The Orthodox establishment may soon come under pressure to make clear what steps it will take to protect a woman who needs an abortion. Shoshana Keats Jaskel said the reversal was lighting up online private forums for Orthodox Jewish women. It's chaos, said Keats Jaskel, a co-founder of Hachmat Nashim, which means the wisdom of women, a group that advocates for better female representation in Orthodox decision-making. The gap within the Orthodox Jewish community, Keats Jaskel said, is between women who have had abortions or who have had at least contemplated them and the men who she says have no idea what goes into contemplating an abortion. The perceptions of who gets abortions versus who actually gets abortions are really far apart, she said. I think some people have no idea who actually ends pregnancies. There are people thinking willy-nilly, a woman's waking up at 39 weeks saying, I decided I changed my mind. Keats Jaskel shared an account posted to a private forum from a woman who had an abortion in 2001 in New Jersey, which allows abortions in cases where the fetus is not likely to survive childbirth. At 21 weeks, we found out there were multiple significant deformities, the woman wrote. The baby could survive in utero, but could not live long outside the womb. He would be poked and prodded and subjected to many treatments, but would die anyway. The woman who consented to Keats Jaskel sharing the account as long as she remained anonymous said she and her husband consulted with a rabbi who advised them to consult with a posek, an arbiter of Jewish law. The posek said that to save mother and baby suffering, the pregnancy should be terminated, he, she said. Had the law been different, I might have had to carry that fetus to term, deliver, and watch it die. I don't know that we would have gone on to have more children if we had had to endure that. It was traumatic enough as it was. People don't understand how often this happens, who actually needs to terminate, and how changing the laws, even with exceptions they approve of, is cruel. In a 2018 article in the foreword by Avital Chizik Goldschmidt, a writer in Rabbi's Life, aggregated anonymous accounts she had gathered from Orthodox Jewish women of why they had an abortion. Some had been raped. Some were in abusive relationships. Some had life-threatening pregnancies. Some fetuses would not have survived long after childbirth. Some women were contemplating suicide. The article was circulating among Orthodox women after the decision, which Keats Jaskel said was typical. It gets shared every time abortion comes up, she said. 
proliferation of such stories illustrates the gap between the Orthodox establishment and Orthodox women who are infuriated when they see organizational officials decry abortion on demand, a phrase Agudat Israel used in its statement. Most cases where a woman needs an abortion are devastating and necessary, said Sarah Hurwitz, the president of Maharat, the first institution to ordain Orthodox women as clergy. She called the Dobbs decision an unconscionable infringement on the religious freedom of Orthodox Jews in an op-ed for JTA that she co-authored after a draft opinion leaked in May. It's not like a decision that is ever taken lightly, and I think that the assumption that women are just having abortions for the sake of having abortions is not true. Keith Jaskell, who is Israel-based and is busy engaging online with American Orthodox Jews who support the Roe reversal, says just seeing the phrase abortion on demand makes her livid. Abortion on demand, what does that mean, she said. They don't know. They don't know what they're talking about. This is what happens when people who have no idea what they're talking about pick up a cause and start to vomit from their mouths. She blamed the politically rightward drift among American Orthodox Jews, which she said was distorting what had once been nuanced, deeply researched, and considered opinions on matters of Jewish living. I think they want to be identified, you know, as right-wing, she said. They want to be identified with the more religious, and in America, religious is Christian. Christianity holds very different views on abortion. Blythe's proposal of a fund to get Orthodox women to liberal states was unviable, said Keats Jaskell, Hurwitz, and Scheiniger. Blythe proposed a stipend to be limited to women who produce a statement signed by a recognized POSEC attesting to the halachic propriety of the procedure. Scheiniger said the burden of proving need, need would be overwhelming. Having them go and perhaps show financial need and gain access in some cases to financial documents that they may not have, may or may not have access to, if their spouses have control over that, or if their father, their parents have control over it, said Scheininger, and, then, uh, and to then ask for money, and then to make those travel arrangements, and to get to that state. You know, you're talking about so many levels for a woman who's already living trauma. Hurwitz said a system that only accommodated Jewish women was inherently inadequate think the Jewish community may have more means to support and help people who need abortions, but I think I'm worried about the whole system and the people who are really going to suffer because it's not financially feasible, she said. Blythe said he did not believe his proposal would ever be needed. Prosecutor, uh, prosecutors were reasonable, he said, even in a state like Georgia where there is no mental health exception. I don't think any district attorney, even in Georgia, would bring a cause of action against the doctor who claimed that his patient's life was threatened because of a mental condition, he said. Scheininger, who, like Bleich, teaches in a law school, said that was wishful thinking. If there's a law in the books, then the prosecutors are going to prosecute, she said. And next from JTA, Boris Johnson's Jewish moments from a broken menorah to a change in Israel-UN policy by Kenan Lipschitz. For many Britons, Boris Johnson's tenure as Prime Minister will have been defined by scandals like the one that forced him to resign on Thursday. For Jewish Britons, the memories might well include a broken menorah. 
Elected in 2019, the Conservative Party leader announced Thursday he would step down after his cabinet collapsed amid his latest scandal. The way Johnson handled the case of a senior official who had been accused of sexual abuse. Johnson had also come under criticism for his violations of the United Kingdom's COVID-19 rules and his alleged failure to report some meetings with Russian oligarchs. Notwithstanding, Johnson has been relatively tough in his criticism of President Vladimir Putin of Russia. Johnson said he intends to stay on until his party holds an internal vote for a successor, leaving open the question of when and whether he will actually vacate the office. When he does, Britain's nearly 300,000 Jews are likely to remember him as someone whose leadership had little lasting effect on their status. Johnson's predecessor, Theresa May, led the UK's adoption of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism, blacklisted Hezbollah as a terrorist group and lifted the unofficial boycott on official visits to Israel by senior members of the British Royal House. In contrast, Johnson's tenure featured few changes, for better or worse, on the issues that many community leaders hold dear, according to Herschel Gluck, an influential Orthodox rabbi from northern London. He noted that under Johnson, British authorities did strengthen enforcement of rules that Haredi Jews, uh, Haredi Jewish schools in the United Kingdom seemed, seemed reluctant to uphold. Johnson has charisma, spoke generally in positive terms, and gave the feeling that the community was dear to his heart, which a lot of people liked. But I can't think of a single area where he actually delivered, Gluck said. Anat Koren, the editor-in-chief of London's Hebrew language newspaper, Alondon, offered a more sanguine assessment of Johnson's tenure. He was a friend to Israel with a warm attitude to the Jewish community, she said. He made sure there isn't a deterioration when it comes to the government's attitudes to Israel and the Jews, and that's already a lot. Whatever his scorecard on Jewish issues, Johnson certainly provided some memorable Jewish moments since 2019. During a coalition-building visit last month to the offshore British territory, Johnson, who is a key promoter of the UK's departure from the European Union, visited the Belfast Synagogue and vowed to sort out the kosher market problems that Brexit helped create. The issue has not been solved as of yet, but its acknowledgement was an unusual recognition of the plight of a small minority by a politician who has sought to minimize Brexit's negative effects. During a Hanukkah reception in London last year, Johnson enthusiastically waved around a delicate menorah that he had just been given as a token of the pre appreciation of the conservative Friends of Israel group. The object's candle holders went flying across the room. Johnson, true to his bumbling public image, looked sheepish while the menorah was reassembled. Yair Lapid, who was then Israel's foreign minister, laughed at the situation, Johnson or both. I guess you're not supposed to wave a menorah about, Johnson was heard mumbling. In a 2021 video greeting for Passover, Johnson, whose maternal great-grandfather Elias Avery Lowe was a Moscow-born Jew, demonstrated some deep familiarity with the Jewish customs and even used a Yiddish word, kvetch, which means to whine or complain, to refer to some of what goes on when Jewish families sit around the Passover Seder dinner table. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer. 
and I thank you as always for listening.